all. Welcome to Town Talk on News Talk 1230 WFVA. Over the next hour, you'll be introduced to business and local leaders impacting our community. Text your comments or questions directly to the studio at 540-371-5756. Now, the host of Town Talk, Ted Schubel. We're going to talk about politics and a whole bunch of other things this morning with Dr. Stephen Farnsworth here from the University of Mary Washington, professor of political science and international affairs and the director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at UMW. Dr. Farnsworth is great. To have you in studio again this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. There is a uh, election every year in Virginia, and we'll get into Virginia politics. But boy, it's a presidential year, and it is uh, shaping up to be once again a pretty interesting presidential year. Well, a- absolutely. You have with the prospects for Donald Trump being the Republican nominee, you have the opportunity for lots of of media attention, lots of controversy, lots of chaos in the year ahead, and of course, you also have. A rematch, it looks yeah. like, as we're looking forward to the general election, uh, as Joe Biden and Donald Trump face off once again. Uh, Biden's presidency has been successful legislatively. He's gotten a number of things passed his first couple of years, but nothing really shows that he's really built up much love on the point from the point of view of uh, supporters. And so the poll numbers suggest that this is going to be, uh, once again, a pretty close contest, a race to the finish. And uh, uh, it's rare that you actually see a former president and a current president running against each other. Uh, so um, there's that, too. I was trying to remember because we, 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 I guess you'd have to go back to what was, was it like Adlai Stevenson and Eisenhower. Is, didn't they run right, against they each other? They ran together in 52 and 56. Yeah. Um, the, the reality is that this is pretty unusual. Normally, when presidents lose an election like George H.W. Bush did after one term, or Jimmy Carter, they go off and they do things for the public. You know, maybe they build houses, maybe they mm-hmm. uh, they they you know work on their um, their books, whatever it might be. Uh, it's really unusual uh, for presidents to come back. You know, when Al Gore lost that nail biter in two thousand by um, by virtue of the Supreme Court decision yeah. to stop counting ballots. Uh, that situation, uh, Al Gore didn't come back in 2004. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking how different things would be in this country if, if if Donald Trump had just said, I think I won. The courts said I didn't. I'll see you all in four years. You know, no January 6th, no insurrection, um, no criminal charges. Uh, in fact, it would have been a very different environment if he had just handled it from the point of view of I'll be back and I'll get my revenge in 2024 isn't that interesting you're right and just because because i was going to say to you this has set up i don't know that i can remember a, a presidential contest where really both parties that really you you donald trump obviously has is, is the polls just show among republicans just just way out in front but you I mean, and both republicans and democrats there there really are there are segments that just really wish there could be other choices. Well, you know, I, I, I must say that one of the things that I notice when I talk to my students is they do not understand this for the life of them. You know, why in a country of 300 million people yeah. are these are choices? You know, mm-hmm. particularly they're concerned about age. Um, you know, I am I'm in my 60s now. And, you know, my whole life I've seen one president my age. I'm about Barack Obama's age. OK. And so what is the domination of these people born in the 40s? That, yeah, you know that continues to, uh, to you know, uh, and so you know I don't necessarily see the world through the eyes of a twenty-year-old, but uh, but as the uh, as as I look at the um, 
the dynamics of politics, you really don't see all that much power and influence from the point of view of younger people. If you look at, you know, speakers of the House, you look at Senate majority leaders, Senate minority leaders, you look at presidential candidates. I mean, it's it's um, you know, it I guess it makes the cardinals look spry. Yes. Yes. Well, so it, it appears uh, unless I, I don't know what could happen that would would change, like you say, that, that this is this is going to be, especially this late in the game, it's going to be, I would assume, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden again. Well, that does seem to be the likely scenario here. Uh, even though um, Donald Trump is facing a lot of charges, the timing of some of these court appearances and the trials, if they even keep the schedule that they're on right now, and that's no guarantee, uh, means that Trump will be facing the most serious charges later in 2024, um, by the time uh, they've already selected a nominee mm-hmm. on the Republican side. Um, you have the same, of course, situation on the Democratic side. Joe Biden's way, way ahead in terms of, of the Democrats. And so there isn't much chance that a Democrat is going to be able to uh, change the dynamic of this race. I mean, the things that are going to change potentially that would be really sort of dramatic in terms of uh, this trajectory of Trump versus uh, Biden uh, would be something along the lines of some big health scare. Um, that would be the main thing, I think, um, because I don't think that the um, that the trials will happen early enough to affect the Republican nomination stage. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that, that people don't appreciate is that a lot of Democrats want to run against Donald Trump. They prefer Donald Trump to Nikki Haley or, yeah. or, or someone else. And be in part because Biden has beaten Trump before. Uh, there is the uh, the dynamic now of January 6th, which could also, I think, really repel a lot of moderate voters, um, the way that Trump has handled that. Um, you know, if you have a choice between backing the, uh, the, the one president in American history who's been criminally charged versus not, um, that's going to be a, a pretty compelling argument, I think, for a lot of those voters in the middle, people who are not reflexively Republicans or Democrats. And so, you know, I think that uh, Republicans would be taking a very high-risk strategy in nominating Trump. But, of course, given Biden's age, nominating uh, Joe Biden would be a risk, high-risk strategy for the Democrats, too. Yeah. Um, so so here we are. Um, we can't predict the future. Uh, you know, more so um, it's problematic this year than, than many other years because there's just all these undecided things. What What is the economy going to look like? You know, mm-hmm. what is the situation in U- Ukraine going to look like? Uh, Israel, uh, the Middle East, you know, this is another area of potential problems. Uh, there's the border. I think that one of the, uh, the single biggest problem that Biden is likely to face this year probably isn't the economy. I think it's probably the border. And so, you know, what is that going to, to look like? I mean, how cooperative are the Mexican government officials going to be with respect to blocking people coming into the southern border of Mexico, because that's ultimately where these people are coming from. They're not primarily Mexicans coming into the United States. They're people coming from Central America and elsewhere coming through Mexico into the United States. And then there's the, does the Supreme Court step in and make some kind of a decision on some of these states that are are talking about and have kept President Trump off the the primary ballot. Yeah, where we are right now, we have these two states um, that have said that Trump cannot be on the primary ballot, um, Maine and Colorado. Um, Almost certainly. uh, And there are some other states that have addressed this question and have decided Trump can stay on the ballot for the primary. Um, There is a, um, a provision in the Constitution put in place to to deal with Confederates after the Civil War that said that if you participated in an insurrection, you can't be a, um, a federal employee. Yeah. Um, you, you, my, my guess is that um, 
that the Supreme Court, remember three of the nine people were appointed by Trump, six of the nine by Republicans, my guess is that the Supreme Court will say that Trump can be on the ballot and the voters will decide how this this works out. Um, I, I think there are some, you know, it's possible. There's certainly uh, some conservative voices in particular, the anti-Trump conservative movement uh, that are raising the issue in court filings that, that he are, are, is covered by this even without a conviction, even without a vote by Congress to to declare the Fourteenth Amendment applicable to his situation. Yeah. Um, so we will see. Um, and you know, of course, the Supreme Court is also going to be dealing with the other issues with respect to presidential immunity and and other things that are out there. Um, you know, the strategy for Trump legally is just simply uh, to run out the clock. Um, the idea is that if he if he runs in two thousand uh, and becomes president this year. Uh, then he can, you know, pardon himself or fire any lawyer who wants to charge him with a crime or whatever. Yeah. Um, if he loses, then he's in, uh, you know, he has no real ability to do any of those things. Uh, but it's it's pretty clear, I think, from the filings in the 90-some charges that Trump is facing that he's in a world of trouble legally. Uh, and the best scenario for him, win the election uh, and make it all go away, at least for a while. I hear people on both sides, and you and you, you do wonder. That these are just fascinating times that we live in. But you you, you hear people on, on both sides who just say, no matter who wins, the other side's not going to accept them, and who knows what we're dealing with after November. Well, I, I do think it's important to note that we're living in a time that the term we use in political science is, is negative partisanship. It isn't so much that you like mm. your team, but you really hate the other teams yeah. so much. And that's why I think people will, you know, hold their nose and, you know, vote for Trump, even if he's a, even if they're a Republican and they don't like Trump, they'll, they'll say, well, better Trump than the other side. Uh, and the same thing for Biden. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people who are not enthusiastic about either of these men within their own parties. But the reality is that one, there's no viable alternative. And two, the only thing uh, worse than, you know, your unfavored candidate within your party is the other party winning. And so you really have a situation that is really, really trench warfare in politics now. Um, and it didn't used to be this way. I mean, if you think back to the politics of, um, you know, of 20 years ago, um, right. you had moderate Republicans, you had conservative Democrats in Congress. Mm -hmm. They found ways to work together. Uh, and so being, um, being a president with the opposite party in control of Congress is never what you would wish for, but things could still get done. But right now, nothing is getting done. I mean, you know, we don't have, year after year, we don't have Congress put together a real plan for the budget. You know, th this is just nuts. Yes. You know, I mean, we all um, would fail Congress if they were students in classes, you know? The, the, the reality is you don't turn in a paper, you don't pass the class. Mm -hmm. You don't pass a budget, you get reelected. It's absolutely crazy. They just simply get give themselves another extension. They say, we'll just pile on the debt. We won't take things seriously um, because all we really care about is winning the next election and making sure that the other party loses and then whatever problems there are, um, we'll just we'll just kick the can down the road. And, you know, so far that's worked out. Right. I mean, you know, in, in many ways, I'm, I'm not an economist, but I've always been astonished by the level of uh, willingness to support um, Americans reckless debt spending. Yeah. You know, I mean, w w where does the you know, the the uh, the limit exist? You know, how much debt is too much debt? I mean, we won't know until we we hit it, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the you know, the, we look at countries that have gotten into trouble: Argentina, Greece, uh, right? Turkey. You know, the, their level of debt, you know, is not a 
was not a great deal more when they hit the panic button in international currency markets than where we are right now yeah, in terms that's of percentage scary. as a percentage of GDP. The good news though is there's no alternative to the dollar, you know. And so ultimately, you know, America isn't doing well. It's just all these other countries are doing so much worse that we still look like a better investment than a lot of places. Now, you know, I, I, like I say, I'm not an economist. I don't really understand it. But at a certain point, you know, you have to say we elect these people above all to pass budgets. And what do they do? They just say continuing resolution. Every year. We're just, we're just going to just leave everything the way that it is. You know, and that's, that's no way to do business. You know, we as individuals say, hey, it's time to make decisions about like, buying a house, preparing for retirement, mm -hmm. thinking ahead. You know, we all yep. make these decisions in our own lives as best we can to make sure that we have money saved for the kids to go to college or whatever it might be. Congress does none of these things. Right. Yep. It's just infuriating from the point of view of like efficiency. Because when we talk about shutting down the government, it costs a fortune. Yeah. And we and ultimately we don't shut down the government in most cases. Everybody gets but paid. We spent, and, yeah. But we spent all those weeks preparing to shut down the government when people could have been doing something else. Yep. Dr. Stephen Farnsworth here from uh, University of Mary Washington. Quick break. We'll be back. More coming up on News Talk 1230 WFBA. Welcome back to Town Talk on News Talk 1230. You can weigh in about today's topic on Facebook at WFBA 1230 and by text at 540-371-5756. Here's your host, Ted Schubel. University of Mary Washington's Dr. Stephen Farnsworth here this morning. Good stuff as we go about, about things. General Assembly gets underway next week. It's going to be interesting because you've got a, a governor, a Republican governor, and a, a Democratic General Assembly, which uh, generally, I you look at that and you generally think not a lot will get done. Yeah, I think that um, expecting more or less a status quo uh, of gridlock uh, is the way to think about this next year and the next two years, really, in Virginia. Uh, with a Democratic majority in the House and in the Senate and a Republican governor, um, you see that the two sides are going to be at odds and they both have the ability to put the brakes on the other side's agenda. The reality of, of Glenn Youngkin's term as governor his first two years has been exactly that because, mm -hmm. of course, the Democrats had the Senate during his first two years. Now they have both chambers for the final two. Uh, the, the challenge for the governor is, can you work with these people? And... You know, in many ways, this is a, a case of what might have been, right? I mean, if, if Glenn Youngkin had decided that he was going to be like a Republican Larry Hogan for Virginia, you know, working with Democrats on things, uh, that might have worked out a, a bit better. But from the from the first day as governor, getting right out of the gate, um, there was a really sort of a declaration of uh, a very conservative governing agenda, much more conservative, by the way, than what candidate Youngkin said. But the reality is that that connects him with the Republicans nationally. But it also created a lot of bad uh, blood with the uh, with the Democratic majority Senate. And so there is a great deal of unwillingness, I think, on the part of both sides to cooperate. Now, now I I've talked to some some Republicans, particularly in the Senate, who've talked about there being some ability to work together. Um, and that may be true in the Senate, in the Senate. Um, because this, the Senate has always been more cooperative across party lines than the House. But I will draw your attention to the fact that the more moderate senators have left. Uh, because of retirements, because of redistricting, and these other things. This Senate that takes uh, office this, this week, or next week, um, is going to be the most ideologically polarized between Democrat, among Democrats and Republicans that you've seen in a long time. You don't have those moderate uh, senators. I mean, particularly for people in our region. You, you remember Ed Houck and John Chichester, people like that. They, mm -hmm. 
you know, these were the centers of power of of Virginia politics back in the day, where moderates of both parties told the extremists of both parties what was going to pass. And we don't really have that cadre uh, of moderate lawmakers anymore in uh, in Virginia. And so in many ways, you know, we've talked about this before, there's kind of a Washingtonization of Virginia politics totally. that's gone on in the last 10 years. And so the trench warfare that we see on Capitol Hill, well, increasingly we're seeing that uh, Capitol Square as well. The uh, you look at and you look at the, at the governor's budget and in, in, in so many ways you you had a great line about about his budget and uh, I'll I'll let, I'll let you give it because it's 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 a great line. Well, in many ways, uh, budgets are um, a kind of a wish list. Yeah. And so I when I looked at the the Yunkin budget for the coming uh, year, um, I really thought that it was the bureaucratic equivalent of sitting on Santa's knee. Uh, it was a seasonal uh, comment, to be sure. But the idea here is that this is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Democratic majorities in the legislature are not about to give r- rich Virginians a tax break and hit lower income Virginians uh, with higher taxes. That's just not going to happen. Um, the idea that the Commonwealth as a whole is going to support um, a new stadium in Northern Virginia. But that's going to be interesting. You know, I mean, uh, good luck with that. I mean, you are going to have to make such an expensive deal for the other parts of the Commonwealth because Northern Virginia already has lots of problems in terms of securing statewide support for what they want to do. Uh, I, I I have my doubts. Um, the uh, the reality of, um, of of this is also kind of problematic. I mean, you know, I just I just think of those terrorist attacks of 9-11, you know, and, you know, if you have a stadium of 15,000 people on a flight path going international, my word, do you yeah. really want to do that? Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, but, but that's that, beside that point, the, the larger issue is, are we really going to shovel money in the direction of billionaire sports owners uh, and not fix uh, major Evident problems, say, for example, in education. You know, if you look at K-12 performance in Virginia, you know, as this has been a national problem and it's a problem here, uh, COVID really, really clobbered educational performance, particularly for younger students. If you're thinking about people who were learning to read and learning mathematics, you know, this idea of having these classes, I mean, it was unavoidable to shut down the schools uh, for in-person learning. Uh, It was unavoidable, sure, but the reality is that there is a significant price to be paid in terms of the performance of students, um, in terms of the maturity of of students interacting with each other. I mean, you learn all these things about, you know, you're not the center of the universe once you go to elementary school, Um, although you might have learned that um, from your parents in those first few years of your life. And so the reality is that there's a lot of ground to be caught up. I mean, if you look at, you know, fourth graders reading at third grade levels or yeah. what have you, and that's a, it's a national problem. But it's clear that we need to think about investing more uh, to make up for that col- colossal decline in student performance. Um, like I say, it's a national problem. It's not like Virginia has done something wrong in education. Uh, but it is a uh, significant source of money that we're going to, and you're going to say, I'd rather build a new stadium uh, than fix um, the challenges that are in public education right now because of the consequences of COVID and the academic declines that were triggered by uh, by Zoom learning. Right, right. It's, it's it's easy for the governor to stand with the with with, with the owner of the capitals and the and in in the wizards and do this, 
But when you when you start talking now about having your local delegate or senator vote on this, it, it does become an issue. Right. I mean, if you're you know if you're a delegate in Richmond or Hampton Roads, how much do you really care where the capitals are? You know that that five mm-hmm. miles difference between. Um, Downtown DC. Downtown DC and Potomac Yard. Potomac Yard is is trivial if you're already yeah. driving a hundred miles. And, you know, and so I, I just don't see um I, I don't see a ready audience for this project in the Democratic majorities. Now, sure, the Northern Virginia deleg- part of the delegation is going to want it. There, th- there's a lot of support for it. But the you know, the reality is that you don't get across the finish line without Richmond delegates and Hampton Road delegates in the Democratic caucus. And, and yeah. that's the challenge, I think, that the governor faces right now, because, again, he hasn't built up any goodwill with Democrats. And so um, it seems to me that if I were a delegate in Richmond or Hampton Roads, I'd say I'd worry more about schools mm-hmm. than, uh, than where the ice is. Because Congresswoman Spanberger has announced for governor and, and, and the Richmond mayor has also announced, you, it's, it's almost as if the, the race for governor starts this year. Well, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, one of the, the things that, you know, that enables us to have these conversations regularly, Ted, is the fact that politics never stops. Never. Here. You know, we get out of these House of Delegate and Senate races. We're already talking about who the next governor is. Yep. Well, you know, there's a presidential election before that. And um, if you listen to Donald Trump, he's saying Virginia is going to be one of his priority states going into 2024. He's going to invest a hmm. lot okay. uh, in Virginia. Um, the election of Glenn Youngkin reminds people that Virginia isn't as blue as some people might wish it were. And so the purple state status suggests that that. Yep. Now, I, I, I'm not sure that, that that's Trump's best prospects. You know, I, I think he's you know his road to 270 probably gets him there without virginia if he wins but um you know the reality is that we're going to be talking about that too but in terms of the governor's race here in virginia it's absolutely um it's absolutely already underway um you have um you know congresswoman spamberger uh lavar stoney the mayor of richmond you know already in um and you know i you know, I, I think there's still an opportunity for more of a, a more liberal left Democrat to get into this race, although there isn't much chatter about who that might be. Um, the uh, the reality is that we're looking at a lot of of competition around here. You know, not only will the governor's race be hard fought, we're going to have a an open house seat here in, in the mm-hmm. Fredericksburg area. Yeah. And the district to the north of us, the 10th district, which is the Prince William district, that, that's going to have that's an open seat. Um, and so you have. Um, a lot of uh, of competition, a lot of political conversation uh, that's uh, that's taking place. When we come back, we're going to continue on with uh, Dr. Stephen Farnsworth this morning. A couple books that uh, he's been involved with. We'll talk about that and uh, a uh, his just personal life, a a, a a a great opportunity that he'll be involved with beginning in just a few weeks. More coming up with Dr. Stephen Farnsworth from the University of Mary Washington on News Talk 1230 WFVA. It's 831. From the Fredericksburg Dot Today online news studios, this is News Talk 1230 WFVA Fredericksburg, a centennial broadcasting station focused on Fredericksburg. ABC News, I'm Brian Clark. This is Town Talk on News Talk 1230 WFVA. Hear the show anytime by subscribing to the Town Talk podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And now, here's your host, Ted Schubel. Dr. Stephen Farnsworth in this morning, professor of political science and international affairs and the director of the Center for Leadership and uh, 
uh, Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington. Before we talk about some other things, the uh, the, the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at, at, at Mary Washington, talk about that because that is a jewel in this area. And if, if you're someone who's interested in some of the things we've talked about in politics, getting involved in any form of politics, this is a great opportunity. You've got small class sizes and uh, you know a few people in Richmond and D.C. Well, absolutely. And this is one of the things that we can uh, can offer potential students at Mary Washington. You know, if you're going to be a political science major and you're interested in politics, well, you know, we have a network of people who were Mary Washington students mm-hmm. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, who are looking out for the current generation of Mary Washington students. And, you know, a lot of those students, because I, you know, I first, I, my first semester at Mary Washington was in 1995. And so, Was you know, it? Well, okay. I've been here a while yeah. talking to students and helping them along the way. And so th- they're people who are in touch when they have opportunities, when they have openings. And so it can work out quite well, I think, for the current generation of Mary Washington students because we have such a loyal alumni network. And, of course, you know, in the political science department, our location here, you know, it's easy commute into uh, into Richmond, easy commute into D.C. Well, I say easy, you know, don't use 95, <laughs> use the VRE. Yeah. But but the reality is that you can have a, um, a great opportunity that wouldn't occur to you at almost every other school in America. I mean, if like I was an undergrad um, at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, and if I wanted to be on the Hill for a semester, I would have had to take the semester off. I would have mm-hmm. had to find an apartment. I would have had to do all those kinds of things, whereas... If, you know, I schedule my classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something at Mary Washington, I could go to the Hill all day on Tuesday and Thursday, get a great experience. I'm still getting credit towards my degree. You know, I don't have to find an apartment. I just have to pay the VRE ticket. And that's an extraordinary opportunity. And, and of course, if you go in south to 95, you know, you get in your car, you go to 95. Traffic's not as bad south of town in the morning as it is north of town. Yeah. And so, you know, these are opportunities. And... You know, I also talk to some reporters now and then, and so there are opportunities for journalism students that uh, are interested in politics as well. So, so these are the kinds of things that we can can do at Mary Washington. You know, I have, you know, I'm, I'm one of my former students who worked with me at the center um, doing research. We do polling and and you know, I was we, say we the write polls book the... chapters and things like that. Yeah, and um, and she just got a job at the Daily Progress in in Charlottesville. You know, and that's mm-hmm. and that's the kind of thing that that can work. Um, for uh, for these uh, for these students, you know, we have very good students at Mary Washington. Uh, they've accomplished a lot. She was one of the editors at the student paper, uh, in addition to working with me as a research associate. And so she was able to to get herself a nice job, you know. And the, we have people who are chiefs of staff to members of the House in Congress in Washington. Uh, we have people um, across the state bureaucracy in Richmond. And so when we have people who are um, looking for the next opportunity. Um, we also have loyal alums who are looking for Mary Washington students for the opportunities that they have in their own offices. So, you know, these are things that can really, really work well. I think one of the big challenges for, for higher ed now is that so many places are so big that it's very easy for students to get lost. Yep. And um, one of the things that happens here is you come to class, you work hard, you know, you're in a class of, uh, particularly when you're talking about majors, in a, in a given discipline, not just political science, whether it's history or theater or whatever, you know, you have a handful of students, you know, you maybe have 25 students in the room, maybe less. And, you know, you're going to know who's doing the reading. You're going to know everyone's name. You're going to know what they're oper- you know, what they're capable of and how disciplined they are. And, you know, those kinds of things can, you know, allow them to develop the kinds of things that interest them, the kind of opportunities that, that come from being here. I mean, if I were, um, you know, looking at, at schools, you know, Mary Washington has a lot to offer for people who are interested in politics, especially. 
well, in, in, in somebody, and I know with my own kids, where, where you go in, in, in having a network that, that gets you something and can, and can help you get plugged in after you graduate is so important. And like you, like you said, in, in, especially in this, this area. Well, it, you know, there are just so many opportunities. You know, yep. we get we get students from out of state. You know, they come from Pennsylvania or Ohio. And in many ways, they look at a Mary Washington degree as an exit visa. You know, they, they're not going back to Ohio. They're mm-hmm. not going back to Pennsylvania. What they're going to do is they're here in, in, uh, in Mary Washington yep. because they want to be working in Washington. They want to be working in uh, Richmond, a state capital. Um, and those kinds of opportunities um, just don't exist in places where, you know, you're a long ways away from Washington or Richmond. And so those kinds of opportunities, I think, give Mary Washington a great competitive advantage. But it isn't just political science. Right. You know, yeah. you, you, know you have um, all the museums in Washington, mm-hmm. all the arts and cultural opportunities in, in Washington, you know, and, and other departments, other faculty members are wired into those networks. And so those kinds of opportunities are, are out there for uh, all kinds of possibilities, not just political science and journalism, the ones that I know best. Yeah. UMW.edu. Check it out. And, uh, and and keep that in mind when you're when you're looking at it, it's 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 more than just like you say just the, the Fredericksburg campus it's it's an experience and it's it's connecting you so yeah good stuff couple of I knew this was going to happen we I have I we could we could talk for two hours and, and and still have have more to talk about but in in talking about you you talked about polls and you talk about books you've got a, you're involved with a couple of books right now co-author of a late night in washington political humor uh and uh the american presidency boy that is that is that that is certainly part of the uh that that, that whole that, that that whole late night humor is is has become part of the fabric of politics well that's absolutely true i think that one of the things that uh, has really changed in politics in the last 20 years is the extent to which people have walked away from traditional media they walk away from the nightly newscast you know when mm-hmm. uh, when you know you and i were in our 20s pretty much everybody was watching CBS News or right, NBC like Walter or whatever. Conkright or Tom Brokaw or, you know, any Dan Rather, Shannon's, what have you. Yeah, right. Rather, yeah. And, and so now you see a lot of people avoiding the news or getting the news in sort of roundabout ways. And one of the key things that we find when we look at public opinion data is that a lot of people, especially young people, are looking at late night comics as a mechanism for learning about politics. And that is... Um, you know, a, a kind of a funhouse mirror version of politics, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to find the most twisted, crazy things of the day and talk about them on these late night comedy shows. But it does create an incentive for people to learn about politics more. You know, a joke about Mitch McConnell is not funny if you don't know who Mitch McConnell is. You know, it isn't funny yeah. if you don't know what he's about, what he sounds like, how he acts, what he mm-hmm. believes. You know, those kinds of jokes don't make sense if you don't know who the person is. And so in many ways, it's like the spoonful of sugar, so to speak, of that old of that yeah. old song, you know, that, you know, you, you hear a joke on late night TV and you say, well, maybe I need to learn a little bit more about mm-hmm. what's going on with, oh, I don't know, the Obamacare bill or something. Um, because, of course, Jimmy Kimmel, one of the other late night hosts, he he's doing a lot of stuff with respect to health care. He had a, a son with a lot of health care issues yeah. um, shortly after uh, the son was born. And so he was very focused on this. And so, I mean, you can make jokes about about late night comedy in way in, in late night comedy about public policy issues and get people thinking about it. It's um, it's a way um, for people who are not like political junkies um, to learn a little bit about politics and and maybe become uh, better citizens in the process. Because ultimately, people are going to be voting how, however much or however little they know. Uh, and so if you can get people more interested, you know, that's probably good for us. Well, and it's, it's changed how candidates have to be able to 
handle that situation. It's anymore. It's, it's not like it used to be because candidates would show up with Johnny Carson, but it's like you've described. It's it's much different now. Yeah, I mean, there is in many ways like the effect of effectively a Colbert primary. You hmm. know, you go on Stephen Colbert, and how well that does you do there can really shape your trajectory. I remember um, in the 2016 campaign. When it was, you know, the, or the 2020 campaign where the Democrats, there were a whole bunch of Democrats running. Joe Biden was the nominee eventually, but there were a whole series. And they would all try to get themselves a little bit of time on Colbert. And, you know, they would get really excited if there was a commercial break and they were invited to stay into yeah. the next segment. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, you have no choice no matter, you right. know, I'm here for the hour. You're here. Yeah. You know, you, you can't bump me for the next act. So, but for, for late night TV, uh-huh. they're ready to go. You know, yep. this this candidate's a dud. You know, you have your Let's four minutes. And, and thanks so much for coming. We'll be back with the animal uh, yeah. show, um, whatever might come next. And so, you know, the next guest. So, you know, that, and that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And you can understand why. I mean, if you look at what um, coverage you get as a candidate, as a presidential candidate, you know, you might not get much if you're not a leading candidate. And you might not have very long to be able to be heard, you know, a sound bite of 10 seconds on the evening news um, or four minutes of conversation about where you want to take the country on Colbert. Why, you know, you, it's obvious, particularly if you're not a front runner, um, that you get a lot out of these things. And presumably the public does, too, because you have a chance to really get a sense of who someone is in four minutes that you can't really get mm-hmm. in a sense of a 10 second snippet in a newspaper story or online or wherever you go to get your news. The the, uh, the humor in uh, the humor in Washington book is that I guess that's available wherever where uh, Amazon that's right. and that's right. wherever you need to wherever you get your books. Um, there you go. So it's, it's a good read. We'll, we'll sometime in the fall we'll talk more about. We'll get you back and, and talk more about this. Same with the producing news in a time of disinformation. Information strategy for both journalists and news consumers. Boy, that has changed. It, it's it's I know I have a hard time sometimes. Understand being able to 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 figure out what's 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 true and what's been manipulated. Well, I, this is a big big challenge because disinformation is big business right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who are really really in the business of making sure that we don't know the truth, and that can really really create problems for a democratic society. Um, I am um, I'm a former journalist, and um, I have worked in. Eastern Europe on international media development projects, trying to help build civil societies by more professional standards for journalism in the countries of the former Soviet Union in particular. You know, I've been to Armenia several times and Ukraine and Azerbaijan and and some others. And the idea here was that you, you know, can build a democracy um, from the bottom up by getting citizens engaged, by getting journalists to reach more professional standards than they learned during Soviet times. And so, you know, these were sort of the things that we worked on. And so this, this book project which was um, co-authored with Michael Murney of um, of the International Research and Exchanges Board, an, an NGO. Uh, he's a Russian-American um, um, looking at journalism from the point of view of an international lens. Okay. You know, we were looking at how, uh, how governments lie to you. We're looking at how journalists lie to you. And so if you're a news consumer or a journalist, you know, these are some of the strategies that you can use to detect falsity. Um, and these are some of the things that you can do in your own reporting to make sure that you're not in the business of promoting falsity. Because one of the things we know from public opinion data is sometimes just talking about something helps make it more credible. You know, the idea that, oh, the 
the COVID, uh, COVID is a hoax. The idea that it has to do with 5G networks or that this was a pandemic put forward by uh, whoever your enemies are. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those sorts of stories sort of percolate throughout the conversation. And, you know, in many ways, because social media doesn't have anything in the way of serious gatekeeping, um, you end up with this information that's false getting treated as seriously as the information that is true. Um, and that's a big, big problem. Because if we don't know what the truth is, you know, people throw up their hands and say, why participate? Why, why do any of it? Because it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so it's really, really important, particularly as AI is getting bigger and bigger, right. to think about this kind of issue. Because if we can't have facts we can't make sound decisions. That's right. true for policy, mm -hmm. and that's true for politicians. And so we have to make decisions as voters. We have to make decisions about um, being citizens, about what we want for our future. And the reality is that there's a great deal of falsity that's being promoted, um, and people are being rewarded for it. Um, you look at the disinformation that's out there uh, with respect to one thing after another, and it can be very discouraging. But so, you know, so my, my friend Michael and I, we wrote this book with this idea in mind that it's really important for journalists to think critically about how to write about false information because when a politician says something that's false, you can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. You have to write about it. But how do you write about it? What can you say? What can you do? If you're a news consumer, how likely is this story to be true? How likely is what this politician told you to be true? And so we have in this book some strategies. Now, this book is going to be available free. We're going to put it online. And it's going to be available to anybody who wants to download it. Um, hopefully, in a few weeks, we'll have the web page all set up. So, so okay. I'm not making any uh, any royalties off this book. Um, this is a project that was funded in part by the U.S. government, full disclosure, um, USAID. And the idea is that this is an important thing. It's actually being translated into Russian as we speak because one mm. of the major problems yeah. of disinformation is, of course, in the Russian language environment right now. Fascinating. So look, look for it. Uh, producing news in a time of disinformation. I guess when that does, when that is, uh, becomes out there and is, is free, that'll be made. Though that will be made known, and we can uh, we we'll uh, we'll we'll get that word out because that, we all need strategies. Every one of us. Well, you have to be your own editor now. I mean, twenty yes. years ago, you know, you would say, well, if it's in the paper, you know, somebody has vetted it. Mm -hmm. But if it's online, nobody has vetted it. You know, and people who are anonymous take advantage of that on anonymity and they say the craziest things because they want it. And that information gets reposted, because, not because it's true, but because people want it to be true. And so you end up with a situation where um, there is so much value attached to falsity because it serves a partisan end. And that's really, really damaging for democracy because, you know, Democrats don't have a monopoly on wisdom. Republicans don't have a monopoly on wisdom. Uh, but we can't have an honest conversation about which approach, which policy alternative is better if there aren't facts that underlie yep. the conversation that we're about to have. Dr. Stephen Farnsworth here this morning. Quick break. We're going to come back and uh, talk about uh, what you're going to be doing over the next few months. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Stephen Farnsworth here. We'll be right back on News Talk 1230 WFVA. This is Town Talk on News Talk 1230 WFVA. Download the all-new News Talk 1230 WFVA app for Apple and Android. Text your comments or questions directly to the studio at 540-371-5756. And now, here's your host, 
Ted Schubel. It's been the fastest hour in radio. We have covered a lot, Dr. Farnsworth. I mean, I mean, you've played along and helped me here with uh, getting getting through all of this. Dr. Stephen Farnsworth from uh, UMW here this morning. You, my friend, are about to uh, embark on a, uh, a trip to Poland, and uh, this is a this is a big deal. I've been selected as a Fulbright Scholar for uh, for Poland. I'll be at the University of Warsaw, the American Studies Program, and I'll be talking about presidential communication, which is the subject of many of the books that I've written, yeah. uh, much of my academic research. And so uh, it's going to be a great opportunity for me to see the world through the eyes of international students. Um, this is one of the biggest American mm. Studies programs in Europe, and so I'm just thrilled to be able to uh, to be headed over there to talk to graduate students in, uh, in who are very interested in the United States, um, primarily uh, European students um, who have the opportunity to think about uh, America, and they will look at it, of course, in a different way than than students in the United States do. And so it'll be a very interesting experience. I've I've always always found it really valuable to see America through the eyes of other people. When I was doing the media development work in Armenia, talking with them about how America looked to them or, yeah. or you know, the time I spent in Ukraine, what their views are of the, are of the United States, that's a great experience. And so it becomes a, uh, a great way also to sort of enrich my classes when I come back. I'm only going for the semester, the spring semester I'm going to be in Poland, and then I'm back at Mary Washington uh, for the fall semester. Uh, so I'm taking this, uh, you know, relatively brief leave. And... This opportunity will really, in, in, you know, encourage me to think about politics in different ways, think about the United States in different ways, and then I can bring those kinds of experiences back into the classroom um, because of that different perspective that comes from looking at America from the outside for a while. Oh yeah, what 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 a great opportunity! And you've done these, you've you've done, you've been a Fulbright Scholar a couple of other times, haven't you? Right, I was a Fulbright Scholar at McGill in Montreal for a while. Um, I was a a full year uh, Fulbright, and then. Um, I did also spend a semester at Methodist College Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia as a Fulbright specialist. So I have had these opportunities to uh, to to do this kind of international, tr- tr- you know, experience of talking about the United States with international students. It's it's a something really very rewarding, and one of the greatest things about academia is the opportunity to do these kinds of things now and then. Yeah, to kind of step back and to be able to do that, like you say, this is this gives you a different perspective. Uh, with with students, well, it keeps it fresh. I think that yeah. that's an important part of being a compelling professor. You know that you want to figure out a way to talk about things uh, that isn't just the way you talked about them twenty years ago. Uh, hmm. You know, I think one of the things that I like to focus on is um, you know what's new and different, and that you know kind of perspective uh, that comes from this in an international experience like that is so um, is so rewarding not only to me personally, professionally, but also, I think, to me as a teacher in terms of what I can offer at the at the classroom level. And I've noticed with you, it's, you, you know, we talk about, we just, you mentioned a few minutes ago, your um, your connections with Ukraine. When, when some of these issues happen around the world that a lot of us don't have any kind of connection to, you do have connection with them. You you know people, you know students, and it makes it more more real to you, and uh, you're, you're able to have a perspective that's much different. Well, you know, I there there is a limit, of course, to this because I don't I don't speak Ukrainian or Russian. I only, yeah. you know, um, but there are some things that you can really see in terms of like media strategies and things like that. Like I, I teach a course in the media every spring semester, and I brought in you know over the course of the the, the spring semester last year, you know, several 
issues about like what they did on video to try to encourage Ukrainians to feel positive about the government while the war was going on. You know, these yeah. are some of their public relations efforts. And you know, fortunately a lot of this stuff is translated into English now because you've got you've got a lot of Ukrainian Americans who are pro Ukraine and so they want to uh, and they want to make sure that the Ukrainian government wants to make sure that they connect with those people and build support because remember, you know, uh, Russia is a huge threat to Europe. Um, Ukraine is just simply the appetizer. And so, you know, speaking personally, you know, the, you know what they're in, enduring in Ukraine is horrific and completely avoidable. Um, but the reality is that Russia won't stop. And so yeah. this, is a, this is a great, great threat to the world. And, you know, how does a country that is, you know, sort of so much smaller than Russia, uh, so much um, more vulnerable, um, deal with this? And how do they do this? And, you know, and I showed them, like I remember one, one – um, one scene in the really one of the dire moments when the war first started, you know, where you had the f five top people of Ukraine, including Zelensky, saying, you know, we're here. We haven't run, you know. And, you know, I looked at this and I said, this is Henry V at Agincourt, you know, in Shakespeare. Yeah. 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 This is what this is, yeah. you know. Um, and and I showed them, you know, a little piece of the, the Branagh film and I showed them a little piece of, of that of that that uh, Ukrainian um, moment of desperation and that we're all here, we're not going anywhere, we yeah. don't need a ride, we need ammunition. You know, and, you know, that's the, you know, the way the media can really shape the way people look at politics. Dr. Stephen Farnsworth, University of Mary Washington. Safe travels, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. That is it. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the morning. Thanks for listening to Town Talk on News Talk 1230 WFVA. The views expressed by the hosting guests on this program are their own and not necessarily those of this station, its management, or Centennial Broadcasting. Hear the show anytime by subscribing to the Town Talk podcast on your favorite podcast platform. The Glenn Beck program is next on News Talk 1230 WFVA. Focused on...